Want exclusive access to bonus episodes, ad-free content, and extra materials? Then join us on patreon.com slash markvinette. Welcome to the History of North America. I'm Mark Vinette. Perhaps the most famous conquistador was Hernán Cortés, who led a coalition army of Spanish forces and native warriors to vanquish the mighty Aztec Empire in 1521, during the reign of legendary Aztec king Montezuma. In 1519, Hernán Cortés landed with a small Spanish conquistador army on the coast of modern-day Mexico. Through a combination of raw force and political maneuvering, Cortés was able to secure the allegiance of subjugated enemies of the Aztec Empire during his epic advance on the empire's main settlement, in what is now the historic center of Mexico City. The Spanish force entered the settlement and was greeted by its ruler. Initially, the conquistadors were treated well by the Aztecs whilst they stayed in the city, but the warm welcome soon turned sour. Under siege, the Spaniards were desperate to escape the settlement and did so in daring fashion at night in an event called the Night of Sorrows. This humiliating retreat was later followed, however, by an eventual counterattack which resulted in the fall of the Aztec city. Despite a great disparity of forces, Cortés accomplished one of history's greatest military feats when he vanquished the armies of this powerful Mesoamerican civilization to found the Kingdom of New Spain. Let's continue this fascinating historical narrative by examining post-conquest Mexico with Pastor Lance Rolston of the History of the Christian Church podcast, who has graciously agreed to share with us his unique views on this remarkable period in North American history. Following Columbus's voyages at the end of the 15th century to the Caribbean, the expansion of Christianity into the New World was chiefly dependent on the two great colonial powers, Portugal and Spain. From the outset of their adventures in the New World, a religious intention was central to the efforts of the explorers, however secondary it may have become to the conquest and treasure-seeking of their royal patrons back in Europe. By means of a papal bull in 1493, Pope Alexander VI divided the world between the two kingdoms. Although the line was later moved to allow Portugal to colonize Brazil, the original division was a line that was drawn from north to south west of the Azores. Spain was given the West Indies and the Americas, while Portugal, because it had already explored the west coast of Africa and moved towards India through Vasco da Gama's explorations, was given the right to colonize Africa, India, and the east. Now, it seems monumentally arrogant to us today that these Europeans assumed that they were discovering lands that already had people living there for generations. And how do you plant a colony in a place that indigenous people had called their home for centuries? Yet that was the attitude of many Europeans in the late 15th century, and as the scope of geography for the New World was understood, other Europeans joined the rush to grab as much territory as they could. Because religion was a central and defining part of the European worldview, well, they took their faith with them. Priests accompanied voyages as they were a central part of Spanish colonization combining the roles of missionaries, explorers, secretaries, and chroniclers. Often, they belonged to religious orders like the Franciscans and the Dominicans, and then later, of course, the Jesuits. It was with a sense of religious mission, as well as the longing to acquire wealth from indigenous peoples, that men like Cortes began their conquest of the Aztec Empire. Modern students of history know that the Spanish conquistadors seemed not to think that forced baptisms of Native Americans was all that bad of an option. 
What we do well to remember was that these explorers didn't originate that policy. Charlemagne had practiced a similar program of forced conversions. Now, that doesn't make it right, but it does provide a little historical context. Cortés was born in Medellín, Spain. He attended the University of Salamanca and left Spain for Cuba in 1511. At the age of 33, he mounted an expedition against the Aztec capital in Mexico with only 700 fellow Spaniards, but he was equipped with cannons and muskets and then reinforced by thousands of Indian allies who had been brutally dominated by the bloodthirsty Aztecs for generations. Although he experienced a serious reversal after a massacre of Aztec nobles and temporarily had to withdraw from the capital of Tenochtitlan, he returned to the city in August of 1520 and systematically destroyed it. He founded and built Mexico City on the same site and then became governor of New Spain and captain general of the forces in 1522, titles that were confirmed by the Emperor Charles V when Cortes returned to Europe in 29. He was later replaced by a viceroy and died in 1547. One of the major debates between the church and civil rulers of Europe was over who had the right to appoint bishops. While there were seasons when civil rulers took control of this, it was usually the church that maintained control over church appointments. The New World presented a new challenge and an opportunity. The Pope was already busy enough with internal affairs and the threat of reformers to be bothered with selecting hundreds of new bishops for lands that hadn't even been properly mapped yet. And so he granted the monarchs of Spain and Portugal the right to select church leaders in their new colonies. On the colonialist front, a system was developed called the encomienda. By this method, a number of Native Americans were assigned to a colonialist landlord. He was given rights to both tribute and labor, but it was understood that he was responsible for Christianizing those that were committed to his charge. As we'd suspect, the encomienda system became a byword for oppression and cruelty, and resulted in the virtual slavery of the Indians after its introduction in 1503. Brave Dominican priests denounced the system, with one of the earliest protesters being Antonio de Montesinos on the island of Hispaniola in 1511. Bartolomeu de las Casas was another Dominican whose father accompanied Columbus on one of his voyages. When he witnessed the live burial of an Indian leader in 1514 in Cuba, he became a champion of Indian rights for the next 50 years. Now, I want to pause at this point to speak to those that are offended by my use of the term Indian for the Native Americans in the New World. There are those who believe that it's a slight to refer to inhabitants of the New World as Indians because it was an historical mistake on the part of previous generations of Europeans who labeled them as such. But it turns out that many Native Americans want to be identified not as Native Americans, but as Indians. While they know the errant origin of the term, they've embraced it as a self-designation and ask that others identify them as Indians. That's akin to today, the followers of Jesus being more happy to be known as Christians, though the best evidence says the term was originally a slur applied by opponents of the faith to its adherents. In any case, De La Casas had to confront a widespread European mindset based on a philosophical position going all the way back to Aristotle that viewed the New World Indians as inherently less human and so fit to be slaves by nature, an inferior race intended for menial labor and to serve their betters. He worked tirelessly in America and Spain to change this attitude and convince those in authority that the use of force was contrary to a Christian understanding of the Indians as worthy of respect for those created in God's image. His efforts to lobby support at home in influential circles received recognition from the emperor against the activities of the colonists. 
It included a debate in 1550 at Valladolid with the Aristotelian philosopher and scholar Sepulveda. Before he died, de las Casas' campaign for just laws for the Indians was responsible for what's called the New Laws of 1542 and 43, which prohibited slavery and caused the Council for the Indies to be reorganized. After serving as Bishop of Chiapas, de las Casas used his pen on behalf of the Indians, most famously in his brief account of the destruction of the Indies, a hard-hitting critique of Spanish practices in which some claim that he exaggerated abuses. But the work was widely read and proved influential in turning the tide in Europe toward a greater empathy toward the people of the New World. Following the Reconquista, when the Moors were expelled from Spain, the Franciscans and Dominicans were the first in the field of the New World from 1510 onwards, but in the second phase of missions, it was the Jesuit patient of Spain. Mexico, after the era of Cortes, attracted the orders, so that Franciscans landed at Veracruz in 1524, Dominicans two years later, and Augustinians in 1533. Then later, Capuchins and Jesuits arrived. The Franciscan, Juan de Zumarraga, became Bishop of Mexico City in 1528 and proved to be a firm defender of Indian rights, as well as a believer in an indigenous clergy. He became Archbishop of Mexico in 1546. The University of Mexico, founded in 53, reflected the church's emphasis on education. In the north of the country, a famous Jesuit missionary, Eusebio Quino, arrived in 1681 and did missionary work in Baja, California, up into the modern state of Arizona and eventually reaching as far as Colorado. Described as a modest, gentle, humble man who was an upholder of the welfare of Indians, he traveled perpetually in the interest of the mission. He hoped to reach the fierce Apaches, but he died before he could in 1711. Before their formal removal from the region, the Jesuits achieved 37 bases in Baja by 1767. In the modern state of California, a string of Franciscan missions are still to be found between San Diego and San Francisco. Father Junipero Serra, born in Majorca, became the leader of the mission and founded the communities of Monterrey, Carmel, San Luis Obispo, Santa Barbara, and several others. While many of the original buildings are gone, Catholic churches continue on in several of these sites to this day. By 1800, some 100,000 California Indians, many from the Chumash people, had been reached by the mission, and 18 Franciscan mission compounds were established. At least some of the thrust to the north was driven by the Spanish fear of Russian incursion, which was moving south from Alaska. Father Serra also spent some years establishing a work in Texas. Now, regarding Juanapero Serra, Pope Francis had recently arrived in the United States where he addressed both the U.S. Congress and the United Nations. While he was in the U.S., he canonized, that is, he conferred sainthood on Father Sarah. That had been an issue of some controversy for a while, as Sarah's career came under fire from some historians and human rights advocates. Critics claim that Sarah's methods ranged from harsh to brutal. Lashings of the Indians were used liberally in the missions for infractions as small as asking for more food. The friars kept meticulous records, and so historians are able to document this mistreatment. The problem comes in interpreting those records. The language isn't the problem, it's the cultural context that makes interpretation difficult. You see, on one hand, Sarah was devoted to protecting the Indians from exploitation by adventurers and settlers who wanted to reduce the native population to slavery. Sarah understood that people are led to faith by kindness and love rather than a heavy-handedness. That he traveled so far, pioneering several missions, proves that he wasn't driven by some kind of personal profit motive. So, why the harsh treatment of the Indians at so many of the missions? Defenders of Sarah say that such treatment was necessary because of the nature of the cultures of the natives where the missions were located. 
What we can say is that the missions definitely went far to alter the tribal life of the Indians where they were based. If they began as attempts to Christianize Indians while allowing them to continue some of their native traditions, they ended up going much further in converting the Indians not just to the faith, but to the Spanish culture. To modern readers, all this political tension in the church is disheartening. It may be helpful to keep in mind the Spanish world operated under a different perspective than our own. One of the virtues of modern enlightened civilization is the idea of tolerance that people ought to be free to believe what they will without the threat of coercion by the civil government or anyone else. In fact, it's the duty of government to make sure that coercion doesn't rise. Tolerance doesn't mean that all views are equally true or right. It just means that each ought to be free to decide for themselves and to respect the views of others while disagreeing with them. That's not at all the attitude of the Spanish who believed that it was crucial to the peace and prosperity of the empire and all of its people to have right thoughts about God, because ideas have consequences. And if people have wrong, even bad ideas about something as important as who God is and what he's like, it will result in choices that have long-lasting and deadly effects. And if a church leader allows people to hold wrong ideas about God, well, God may himself bring judgment on his city and church for allowing such blasphemy to go unchecked. The winners write history. They get to tell the tale. It seems at least some of the reporting of church officials misrepresented and mischaracterized the position of those they opposed and were able to stamp out. When the writings of these groups were systematically rounded up and destroyed, well, all we're left with is the account of their opponents, a questionable source at best. Hernán Cortés was appointed the first governor of New Spain. His controversial life and deeds ended with his death at 62 of lung disease in 1547 near Seville, Andalusia, Spain. He is not buried there as his will directed that his remains be returned to the great city he conquered and are today interred in a Mexico City church. Check out the YouTube version of this episode, which has accompanying visuals, including maps, charts, timelines, photos, illustrations, and diagrams. I'm Mark Vinette, and I hope you're enjoying the ride. <laughs>